Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Strategy Skills Podcast. Today, we're going to talk to Bill George someone whereby we have overlapping acquaintances and who was also one of the most accomplished CEOs to have ever led a Fortune 500 company as both the chairman and CEO of Medtronic. And he also currently teaches a number of courses at the Harvard Business School. We're going to talk about his new book, which is called Emerging Leaders Edition of True North. But we're also going to talk about his storied career. And what you're going to notice about Bill is that when you listen to someone who has been a practitioner of strategy and leadership, the stories, the anecdotes, the lessons, the insights are much more deeper and practical than someone who is studying strategy and leadership. He has been in the trenches. He's seen what it takes to make action work. He's seen what happens to drive change in an organization. And he understands the real complexities of having things occur. So the conversation is going to be wide ranging as we talk about Bill's career. But the book is also very insightful because Bill has gone out and interviewed about 220, 225 leaders of major companies to understand how they go about making decisions by finding their true north. So the book's interesting and the conversation with Bill is going to be exceptional. So I hope you enjoyed. Hey, Bill, it's great to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great today. Thanks, Michael. Uh, I'm out in Colorado at our second home out here and uh, just having a, a good time, but working pretty hard at the same time to try to get information out about my new book. Many years ago, about six years ago, I considered living in Colorado. But the thing that changed my mind was the winter snow. It was a lot harsher than I thought it would be. Michael, we've got to get you into skiing. There's no skiing in the world like in the back bowls at Vail. It's I, on my I welcome you and any of your listeners to come out here and we'll ski together. Uh, it's on my bucket list. I'm going to definitely take you up on that offer. I'm going to arrive at your house with my ski boots and then say, but you invited me. You just invited me. Uh, very good. <laughs> so let's start off, Bill. You've got a storied career. We can talk about many things, your new book and so on. But I want to start with Jack Welch. I want to start with Jack Welch because he's become the poster child for what is apparently wrong with capitalism and the fact that you chase earnings and you have this smooth growth in earnings. Do you feel the criticism for the way he ran GE is warranted? I think this is a 2022 view. Uh, Jack was an incredible leader. I knew Jack pretty well and worked some at GE, had done teaching there and things like that, worked collaboratively with GE. In the 80s and 90s, he did a lot of good things to make General Electric competitive in a way that some of his global competitors like uh, Mitsubishi and, yeah. and, uh, and Siemens and Philips were falling behind. So he, he focused it on how to be competitive and did a great job. I think he was a man of the 20th century and I really feel that his leadership would not be appropriate at all today. today 
you know, that was back. Yeah, he was trying to maximize shareholder value. When I wrote my first book, I said, this is not the way to go, Michael, that we've got to create sustainable value because we create great value for our customers. We have inspired employees that are highly motivated and we build great communities around us. And when we do that, then we create lasting value for our shareholders. Okay, I like that answer. So what you're saying for the audience is that Jack Welch was the right guy for his time, but times have moved on. Yes, exactly. So that's why I'm not real big on retroactive criticism, Yeah. but I'll give you real time. General Electric, the world's greatest company. When I was a boy growing up, my father used to say, son, look at this company. They're always 10 years ahead of the time. Even when I went to Honeywell, uh, they were seen as a role model. Today, General Electric is gone. There is no General Electric because they didn't adapt to and change with the times. And I think that is a great tragedy to lose a great company like that. And okay, they're going to have a jet engine division spun off and a medical business spun off. That's not the GE we knew. Do you feel that the requirements of leaders has changed or the requirements in the investment community? Well, clearly the investment community, starting all the way back about 1980, put tremendous pressure on short-term shareholder value. And even today, share buybacks, which I'm yeah. not in favor of unless you have a lot of excess cash, uh, has become the mantra of the investment community. I think we want to build sustainable enterprise. A lot of the companies I work with are 100 years old, 150 years old. I am excited about the newer ones that are 50 or less years old. But I think we want to build enterprise. Enterprise can be around for a long time. And that means, A, you have to adapt to the times. And B, you have to build sustainability into your enterprise. And I don't, I'm not referring specifically like to climate change sustainability. I'm yeah. referring to the, the leadership team and the enduring nature of the business, the long-term relationships and doing the right thing by your customers. And if you don't do that, you'll ultimately be out of business. So as leaders today, what should they consider are the things they need to change to be a kind of leader who builds a sustainable business? What would be the top three or four things? Well, the command and control style leadership, the directive yeah. style is dead. So if you want, if, if your employees are largely Gen X, millennials, and Gen Z, which they are, you want to inspire people around a common purpose and values. And that's the key to everything is, do you have a common purpose and values that inspires people? We're talking now about the great resignation. Well, the reason people are quitting is because they don't find any purpose in their work. And uh, the mantra or mission of GE uh, and the former CEO of Medtronic came from GE, was could express in two words, making money. That's not going to inspire people today. No one's going to want to devote their heart and soul to an enterprise for the uh, CEOs and the shareholders to make money. They want to do it because they're building something of, of real value for their customers. In fact, when you mentioned the phrase, the purpose of a company is to make money, it made me cringe a little bit. It was so 1980s. Yes. It just felt not right for this time. It's almost a gut reaction that I don't have to think about. No. And I think you are right. If you look at the most successful companies in the world, they don't promote making money. They don't even promote their brand. They promote their purpose. They subordinate their brand to their purpose. I'm thinking of brands like, uh, there's a famous brand that makes outdoor clothing. I forget its name. Patagonia. Yeah. It's a company that's pretty much built its entire brand around not talking about itself, but about its purpose. And again, see what they get you to identify. I, I'm not a technical climber, but I love to climb mountains. They get you to identify 
with that kind of outdoor lifestyle and that kind yes. of excitement. I'm working a lot with Ralph Lauren company. They get you to identify that Ralph Lauren is the most brilliant designer of the last 50 years. And even though he's in his age today, he still understands what young people want. They get you to identify it. That's the lifestyle I want. That's the way I want to be. Hey, that's what Starbucks did in the early days. Howard Schultz could figure out, you know, we're not selling coffee. We're selling a coffee break. Michael, let's go up and have a cup of coffee. Well, that's not about just about the quality of the coffee. Let's let's have a chance to talk and engage and interact. And uh, so I think you're right. The brands. Now, Medtronic is a whole different business where I come from. That is a brand that stands for restoring people to full life and health. Yes. Restoring health, extending life and alleviating pain. Now, who wouldn't want to work for a company that can offer that to millions of people every year? And who wouldn't want to have a product if you felt it was 100% perfect every time, which it had to be, and the quality was just right, and it was going to restore you to full life and health? And the question, Medtronic, is not, did you get a pacemaker or a defibrillator, or did you get one of our, uh, you know, did, did you get one of our spinal implants, or did your yeah. son get something for his diabetes, uh, a diabetes pump. No, no, that's not the question. The question is, do you have a full life? Can you be a marathon runner? Can you go out and bike long distances? Can you play with your grandkids? Can you, whatever, can you have baby? Can you have a great career? Uh, and that's the question we always ask at Medtronic. And so it had to be with full life and health because we were trying to align ourselves with the actual patients. So I like that. People used to ask me, is your customer the doctors or the patients? And I said, well, really, ultimately, it's the patients. But we support the doctors who care about their patients and try to give them the products that can help restore their patients. So it's really both. I love that analogy because can you imagine what it's like to be an employee of Medtronic, to meet someone at a barbecue, and this person says, you know what? I'm enjoying my barbecue because I'm using some Medtronic product that's you know extended my life by 15 years or something, you'd be part of that. Now, switching gears, going to the flip side of this, pharma companies have been taking a beating in the media recently. You would think, given the work that they do to save lives, extend lives, and so on, they should be darling. So what do you have a view on what they are doing wrong that's not allowing them to benefit from this halo effect? Well, Phil, well, Pfizer, by the way, has done a great job of the vaccine. I remember one of the earlier CEOs of Pfizer said to me, Bill, how can we do so much good for people and have everyone hate us? And I said, well, you might consider that you're pricing, that you're pricing products that people can't afford. Only wealthy people can afford and they have to take them every day. Uh, and so you really need to look at that and put some constraints in. Well, we need to high prices. I said, well, you need it for your R&D, but why are you charging so much for, uh, you know, for insulin yeah. that's been around for 50 or 60 years that people can't afford to get? And don't you want to serve the world market, not just the U.S. market? You know, and a lot of people in India and China sure can't afford those prices until they get to be generic. But if any product should be a generic, it's insulin. So I think it was a kind of I served on the board of Novartis for 10 years, but I think there was an insensitivity around pricing that will charge the maximum we can get. And I think that's wrong. Uh, and uh, they didn't want, you know, in America, they didn't want competition during Obamacare. So they said, you know, we'll never have to negotiate prices with our with the federal government. Well, I sold the federal government all the time. Of course, we had to negotiate prices. Now, it's true in Germany, Japan, you go there, you're going to negotiate prices. That's just the way commerce works. 
you said something that is so profound. I want to take it out and, and build on it for the audience because it's something that you don't hear very often, but it's so true. You said that why do you need to charge high prices for insulin because you don't need to fund R&D? And it's interesting that that phrase that you use because, because when you look at most companies when they want to set prices, they just want to make as much money as possible. But the way you phrase that is that you've got a price in such a way that you can fund the development of something. If you no longer need to fund the development of something, why are you charging so much? And as these companies have seen, they draw the higher regulators, they get upset customers. There are times when you need to price yourself appropriately to gain the goodwill of customers. That's about taking care of your stakeholders, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I was on the board of Novartis when they came up with the Gleevec, which was a life-saving drug. And it was fantastic. But the introduce it and price on a sliding scale according to the customer's ability to pay. So maybe I have a good financial situation. I can pay full price of it. It was a sliding scale based on your ability to pay so that everyone who needed it could get access to it. And But yeah, there was a lot of R&D in that drug, and they wanted to fund the next generation of cancer drugs. And, and same as Ken Frazier, a feature in my book about Keytruda, the largest selling drug of all time. Yes, they want to use that now to, to take the profits and reinvest them. That's the way I looked at it. You always want to reinvest. Uh, but if you're looking at, at people that don't have the financial wherewithal, you have to have a different approach. And so if you're thinking about Africa, if you're thinking about uh, Asia, you're thinking about India, you need a different approach of how to think about these things. So it's, uh, it's scaled to the ability to pay. In and that market. was always a debate I had with the farm industry. No, it makes perfect sense. I remember when I used to be a consulting strategy partner many years ago, I would talk to CEOs and you know the like, and they would always tell me something, hey, Michael, the African market is not profitable. Hey, Michael, this market is not profitable. And I would always correct them and say, the market is not profitable given your business model. Yep. There is profit to be made here because there are people selling things in that market and they are making a lot of money. Right. So you've got to figure out a business model that is profitable and- by serving these markets, you create new sources of revenue. It's not as if you're doing a social good. It's not charity to serve these markets. There's a lot of money to be made there if you figure out a way to do it. You know, it's really interesting. Omar Ishaq came to Medtronic, was a brilliant inventor, came from G, came in as CEO. But he did, he focused first on getting into global markets, particularly India, China, and Asia. And he, what he did is he did something called business model innovation. And he said, you know, there are a lot of pro people that need our products that aren't getting access to. We need to figure out the barriers to doing this and then go in and get it done. And so he did that and even had diagnostic camps to see if people needed the product. All kinds of creative things. He made in India, one of the things, creative things he did, he loaned people money to put a defibrillator, have a doctor put a defibrillator in their body. Now think about that. He loaned them money. So they paid by the month. Well, these Indians could afford to pay by the month, but they couldn't afford to pay for the total amount. I'm not talking about the wealthy Indians. Sure. I'm talking about the, the middle class and, and lower classes. And so uh, I thought it was a brilliant strategy. And But I did kid him. I said, so what if somebody dies? And he said, well, it's like an insurance model. You just put it in the price. You know, you just put it in the lease, you know, the, the rental yeah. price for using the product. But uh, I think rethinking business models is a form of innovation, which is way underappreciated. And that's what creative leaders do. You think about what are your customers' deepest needs and then figure out how can you serve them. And you've got to tailor it to you know, different countries around the globe. There's no such thing 
as I can see it, and one size fits all. So if you're running a giant company, you have to have people in every local market that understand as a leader, how to lead in that market, the nuances of doing business, as you say, promoting your brand, but consistent with the values and expectations of the customers and the citizens in that country. Yes, it's very interesting because business model innovation is often underappreciated because we live in a world where the hottest product, the latest iPhone gets a lot of the attention. I remember speaking to the head of Unilever Africa, Middle East Africa, and he was explaining to me their pricing model. He said that in the United States, they would go for bulk, they would go for volume. They would try to put out a large container and sell at a price which is per unit very low. But people are paying a lot, but per unit it's low. But in Africa, they had to do the opposite because it was a cash flow problem. People couldn't buy in bulk, they didn't have the cash. So they found a way to put a detergent into little sugar packets. Mm-hmm. And they would have it distributed on a bicycle and they would pre-sell in advance to the salesperson so they could buy in bulk, but they would then sell one sachet a week or a day to someone. And I mean, I thought that was such a clever way to solve the cost of distribution problem and build a market. Yeah, very clever. By the way, I worked a lot with Paul Pullman. He's the one that brought that yeah. creativity Unilever when he came there in 2009. And from 2010 for the next 10 years, we... Uh, we, he asked us to train about 20,000 of his leaders in authentic leadership. We started out with about 15 or 20, and he liked the program so much we kept expanding it because the, he had to build that great global organization. But then he had to have leaders who were good for the African market, good for the, you know, the Abu Dhabi market or where, you know, the Indonesian market, wherever they were coming or the American market. Interesting enough, that idea of the sachet, of course, now, that's the way that all uh, dishwasher detergent yeah. is sold. And, uh, you know, and that's the way it's now being sold. Instead of a huge thing of Tide, you're getting a little packet to put in your washer as well. And so you don't need that, you know, that big liquid Tide, you know. And so that's that's creative rethinking what your customers' needs are and starting with that. And that's what we did at Medtronic. Our whole approach to business was to say, before we start developing anything, Let's figure out what the real customer's needs and as our founder used to say, what their wants are. What do they really want at the end of the day? And if you can figure out that what are their unmet medical needs? And if you can solve that problem, you've uh, you've made a great breakthrough because you're you're not just selling another standard product. You know, you're selling something that people really need. What I'm hearing in all the stories and anecdotes and vignettes you've offered, very interesting. But what I'm hearing, and I want the audience to see this, is that you never talk about how to sell to customers. You talk about how to make their lives better. Mm-hmm. It's all about making their yeah. lives better. You ask yourself, how do we make their lives better so they want to buy from us? And you don't even mm-hmm. say, do they want to buy from us? You assume, rightfully, that if you make their lives better, they will want to buy from you. You know, it's interesting. We've been working with, uh, I think I can say this, Albertsons, Safewood. They've got 12 brands. So you may not recognize brands. It's American outfit. You know, it's interesting. They, we've been working with them and they on their own, their top 50 people just came up with a new mission for the company. So I want to read this to you. It's now public, so it's not private, but I think it's fascinating. It's to bring people together around the joys of food and to inspire well-being. Oh, I love that. Did you hear anything there about selling product? No. no. You want to have joy sitting around the table with your family 
with really good food, whether you're an Italian family or a Japanese family or a Chinese family or an Indian family, you know, and who doesn't want to inspire well-being? Don't you want to feel good about yourself and things in life? I just thought it was a brilliant way to think about how do I be relate to, to customers? So I'm not just a food purveyor. I'm doing much more than that. But all successful companies should do that. In fact, if I ever wanted to sit in, well, well I have sat in on strategy meetings with boards, it always surprised me how few of them listen to their customers and talk about how to make their customers' lives better. There's a lot of talks on acquisitions and share buybacks and how to fund the development of some plant. But too few discussions start with who is the customer, how do we make their life better, and how do we prioritize behind those two questions? So I've been on the boards of some very large companies, not bragging, saying, why are boards spending all their time looking at quarterly earnings? Yeah. Do you think a board of directors can influence the quarterly earnings, particularly after they're just being, they're going to be yes. presented tomorrow to the market? What are you going to do? No. What you hit, that's a lagging indicator of how you're doing. Why not look at the, there's two leading indicators that every board of directors and every top management, and you should have a dashboard every day. And it's how you're doing with your customers and the, and have employee surveys to say, how engaged are your employees? How motivated are they? How turned on? And that's what board should be looking at. That's where they're going to find problems. Those are all leading indicators. If you have a demoralized workforce in the end, it's going to impact your earnings. If you have, if you're losing market share in your key markets, <laughs> you're going to lose out. You may say, well, we're making more money for everything we sell. Yeah, right. You're losing share because share, you know, customers will you their feet. And they say, we don't want your products anymore. You know, we'd want somebody else's and then you better take. So I think management and boards are spending way too much time looking at the wrong thing. Now, how would I know about how we're doing those areas? I can look at data in my office as a CEO all the time. That's not where you find out. I tell retail CEOs, you ought to be in the stores every day. Talk to your customer. Just wander yes. around. Act like a customer. Act like, and just ask them, how are you doing? What's it like? Or talk to the employees and say, hey, tell me about the fish here and how they coming in. How fresh are they? And, you know, just talk to people. Be out there. I, when I was at Medtronic, Michael, I, uh, I, didn't, I came to Medtronic with 25 years of high-tech experience, but zero years of medical experience. Yeah. And I, uh, I saw between 700 and 1,000 procedures where I'd meet a doctor at 6.30 in the morning, put on the greens back in his locker. We'd go in and he'd invite me to come in and see him do surgery at 7.30. And I learned more from that process than anything. I wasn't selling anyone anything. But boy, did I learn about what our needs, where our products worked and where they didn't work, what problems. They'll tell you. They'll tell you what's wrong. Or you want to know about the quality. You don't need to go to the quality department. Go talk to people are rational and say, how's the quality? They, oh, Mr. George, you know, we, we're having trouble reducing quality products. This equipment, this automation equipment isn't working for us. It's really shutting us down. So, you know, that's where you learn. And I've seen way too many leaders get trapped in meetings, long three, four hour meetings, yes. when they should be out in the marketplace. And so I'm, I'm always shocked when they don't do that. I had the uh, one more vignette. I had the uh, CEO of one of the world's largest food uh, retailers. And uh, and he told me he didn't have time to be in his stores. This is a they were selling yeah. uh, selling food. And I said, uh, you know, have you ever walked into the bathroom at your store? He said, well, no. And I said, well, that's what your customers do. And that's how they judge how you're doing. 
you know, if it's filthy all the time, then they think, boy, maybe my food isn't going to be so great either. And that's a good point because I'm thinking about how many board members I know who spend time talking to the customers of the companies they sit on the boards of and use the products of the companies whose boards they sit on. And I don't think it's more than a handful. Yes, I'm afraid you're right. You know, at Medtronic, we brought customers in to talk meet with our board. Sometimes made the board a little uncomfortable because they didn't know necessarily enough to feel like they're carrying out a medical discussion with the doctor. But boy, they could learn a lot. Of, you don't need to tell them anything. They told doctors, don't want you to tell them. They just want you to listen. Yes. Uh, one of the great leaders in my book uh, is, and I think the arguably one of the one of the two greatest business leaders in the world today is Satya Nadella of Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Came from India as a young man, got his computer science degree. You know, he's transformed Microsoft from, a know, as he says, a group of know-it-alls to a group of learn-it-alls. He said, if you're not interested in learning, Michael, then uh, you probably shouldn't work here because we're in the business of learning. We learn from each other. We learn from our customers. He's always accessible to those customers. Any major customer or any minor customer can call him up and talk to him about what their issues are. And uh, that was not true of his predecessor because I tried to work with his yeah. predecessor. So that to me is what it's all about. And he also, because he has a son, and I talk about this in the book, his son Zane sadly was born with cerebral palsy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, uh, Satchit tells a story on himself. He said, I learned about uh, empathy. And he said, I've tried to bring that forward to every Microsoft employee. Do you have empathy for our customers? Do you have empathy for the people you work with every day? If you don't, you're probably in the wrong place. And he said he got that because when his son was born, he said to his wife, uh, oh, we're going to have a tough life, aren't we, with a son with cerebral palsy? And she said that the boy's name was Zane, who sadly died this winter at 26. But his wife said to him, Satya, it's not about you. What kind of life do you think our son's going to have? How are we going to make it a good life? You know, wow, that's so a profound difference of perspective. It's such a simple thing. Yes, yes. So that's what leaders have to do today. And that's my whole book, the Emerging Leader Edition of True North, is focused on being that kind of leader. And uh, in the end, you'll win. By the way, Sachin Adela, their stock was flat at Microsoft or, or actually yeah. down over Steve Bomber's. 10 year or 14 years. Such has been there eight and a half years and stocks up eight times. So uh, I'm not making stock recommendations. I'm just saying it pays off on the bottom line too. But don't you feel it's difficult for leaders to learn this? Because the biggest finishing schools for leaders are probably good MBA programs and the top consulting firms to a large degree. But this is not formally taught or even formally rewarded. If you went to a business school, you wouldn't see this as a core part of the training. It's almost like an elective. You can take an elective. Well, I went to Harvard Business School in 2004 because the dean asked me to bring in a course that was going to be called Leadership and Corporate Accountability and talk about these issues, talk about uh, ethics and talk about humanity and talk about the kind of leaders we needed. And, uh, and then I had a spin-off course, which became the most popular elective at Harvard Business School, uh, most sought after. It's not the one. We had trouble getting people to teach it. Some of the academics didn't want to teach it. So let's say it, uh, uh, but it was the most requested. It's called Authentic Leadership Development, about how you become a leader. And the academic world looks at that as soft. I look at this as the hard side. I, can, I know how to get the numbers right. I can get a half dozen 
young MBAs or consultants together, we can get the numbers right quick. But how do we transform a culture? Now, that is hard. If we have a hardline old school culture, Mary Barra, who also featured yeah. a book at Jonah Motors, I tell you, I grew up in Michigan and I had a very low opinion of General Motors before it went bankrupt. Uh, it was just hardcore, old line, white males, if I may say that. And uh, she came in and she's totally transformed the place. And by the way, she's got, they sell uh, twice as many cars in China as they do in the US because they've had such a successful joint venture in China. But Mary brought a whole new look and a whole different approach to leadership of leading with your heart. And, uh, and setting really high standard. You know, that when she went there, they had this ignition switch that failed and uh, she got hauled into Congress about why did it fail. And, uh, and frankly, she told the story, they had been sending all the people who died in ignition switch failures when they learned about them to the law department rather than to the quality department and to the engineering department, which she ran. So she never heard about them. And so she said, we've got to totally change it. This is, I do not want us to get over this. I want this to be a transformative event where, and then the next year she recalled 30 million cars to, to make her point, you know? So that's the kind of leader I admire. Well, I do know there's been a transformation in GM, not because of what I've read, because I once was convinced to go into a GM dealership. And for me, that was the ultimate sign. I'm interested in using their products. That how mm -hmm. much has changed in the last 20 years with her in charge. But I have a question about Mary. How did she get her board to go along on this? Because it's one well, thing to be the CEO who wants to drive it, but she's got to get the board to go along. So what's the worst thing that can happen to a 70-year-old company? You go bankrupt, right? Yeah. My friend Alan Mulally, who I also write about, a board didn't go bankrupt. He prepared for the future. Where General Motors had a policy, a bunch of financially oriented people, and everything was short-term, short-term, short-term. Yes. I've had a lot of colleagues there running they were car people and they said, if it ever came down to a higher quality or a lower price, a lower cost, they'd take the lower cost or a better design or a lower cost, they'd take the lower cost. And so they had to have the shame of going bankrupt and they, the old board left and they brought in a new, new board. Confidentially, I was once asked to be chair of the board. Yeah. I just couldn't afford the time with my teaching at Harvard and other boards I was on. But, you know, Ed Whitaker came in there before Mary and they transformed the whole board. So now they have a board that gets it. They have a first-class board. Uh, really, they do have some fabulous people on their board. So, uh, uh, and Mary, by the way, in the spare time is head of the uh, the business roundtable with the top 200 companies that has really transformed. They're the ones that are advocating and don't try to look at maximizing shareholder value. You've got to look at a stakeholder model and and meet the needs of all your stakeholders. Yeah, that's interesting you say that because I remember when I used to, advise companies, typically when a company goes through a bad patch or they feel they're about to go through a bad patch, well, usually one of the first things they do is they call in consultants to revise their strategy. But I've always thought to myself, maybe you need to fix your board first. Yeah. Well, yes. And, you know, you need to have people on the board that really understand, they get down and, and ask the tough questions. They, they, they don't want to cross that line between management and the board but they need to be willing to ask a hard question. They shouldn't be sitting there for the prestige of the money they get paid. They really need to engage. And yeah, they need to drive their cars if that's a business you're in. Uh, you're not probably gonna use Medtronic defibrillators, but you need to know what the product <laughs> is and get out and talk to our customers and our people and our doctors. But yeah, I think the boards, we, 
But I've worked hard at trying to upgrade boards. I think boards are making a lot of progress now. And they're finally uh, getting much more close, closer to this. But again, boards should be asking about the stakeholders. Yes. How are we doing with our customers? What's the employee attitude, atmosphere right now? What's the culture? You know? And I, I'll give you a terrible example, Mike. I wrote a couple of cases on, you probably heard of the Boeing 737 MAX yes. that had two crashes and killed 346 people. And I worked with Boeing some after the fact, two months after the second crash, and said, you know, you guys, uh, do you care about all these people that died? And they said, oh, we care about that more than anything. I said, well, how would anyone, you haven't, uh, you've never apologized for what happened. Oh, well, my lawyers, I said, it's not about your lawyers. And in a court of public opinion, it's not the facts that matter. It's how you feel about people. And you haven't expressed apologies, empathy, or anything. But, you know, Boeing then made the classic move of moving their headquarters from Seattle, Washington, to Chicago, because where they had no businesses. And so they totally cut their executives off and the board off from any of their businesses. I think it was a fateful move. And they lost touch with the engineers. They're the world's greatest aviation yes. company. But they didn't reward and honor the aircraft, the the air, aircraft uh, designers, the engineers who are designing perfect aircraft. They know more about anyone in the world, but they dishonored those people. Yes, that's right. That's actually a good observation because when you look at the problems from Boeing, it stems from organizational issues. Yes. There was a disconnect yeah, in the organization. It wasn't externally yeah. driven. You know, sometimes like what happened to GM, they faced Japanese competitors, then the German cars came in. What happened with Boeing was internally driven. Yep. Yep, an internal crisis. And they're not out of the woods yet. So I hope they will. It's a great company, a great, iconic American global company. Uh, I hope they will, you know, but uh, and uh, but I think they really have to get back. You know, really, Michael, we should flip the organization chart upside down. You know, the idea that we have the board and the management on top, really, and the CEO, it should be the other way around. It should be the customers are on top, then the frontline employees. And beneath that, all the management and board and everyone else. Because our job, I, I believe in servant leadership. Another thing I talk about in my book, as a, as a CEO, my job is to serve the employees of the company and to make sure they have long-term jobs, they're doing well, they're flourishing, they're well compensated, and they love their work. That's my yes. job. And if I don't do that, replace me with somebody else. That is my, and make sure our customers are really happy. And if we could think of it conceptually that way, rather than the other way around, like we got a hierarchy, companies would be a lot better off. Well, I like that analogy. The one I would use to explain this to the audience is that I, I'm going to use a soccer analogy is that the role of the CEO is like a coach to coordinate a lot of stars and turn them into stars. But what happens at CEOs, they like, some of them like to feel like they're the star player of the team as opposed to the one who's figuring out where the star players can do their best work. Boy, you just summarized my whole book, Michael, <laughs> uh, because uh, we had a chapter, have a chapter 10 is the leader as coach. And if you think, and it's actually an acronym we created, but if you think about great coaches, how they operate, the first thing they have to do is care about their players. Yes. I don't know if you ever saw the uh, the movie Invictus with uh, oh, Nelson Mandela and, uh, and and the rugby team, right? Yeah. Which is, except for one guy was all white, correct? Yeah. Uh, yeah, but they they cared about each other, those players. That's how they won. They cared about each other. And Mandela was an observer of that. 
uh, but it was a great indication. You have to care about, because today with millennials, with Gen Z, Gen X, they will not give you their hearts until they know you care about them. If you don't care about them and the challenges and problems they're having, they'll just be automatons and do the job, but they'll never give you everything they've got. And then that's the C and the second is organized. That's what you said. As a coach, what's your job? Figure out what's the best position for every player on the field. And then third, how do you get them to play as a team? That's what I call alignment. How do you get them aligned over a common goal? We want to win today's game. Well, how are we going to do that? Let's get aligned. And what values are we going to play by? So it's very similar to that mission statement I read. We want to get aligned around that. We want to have a common set of values. And we know how we're going to play. We're going to treat each other well. And, hey, if somebody misses a penalty kick that costs us the win in the game, we wind up with a tie, we're going to empathize with that, that player. He feels terrible. <laughs> I'm talking about soccer now. Yeah. But uh, And then the, the second C is challenge. Have you ever met a coach, Michael, that didn't challenge you, that said, you know, you can do a lot better. I know you can do better. You've got a lot of capabilities. And so I'm going to challenge you to go out you know, you need to shoot just as well with your left foot as you do with your right. I don't care what the sport is. You need to do that. You need to figure out how to get play more defensively. On my team, you can't just play offense. you got to play defense. Or And then finally, you know, it's help. Get out and work with the team. we got a problem to solve. I used to do this in Metroid. Let's just get the best people around the table and figure out how to solve the problem. And But you got to help people that are struggling. So that's my idea of, of what a leader does today of being a coach. Going back to the Invictus example, which is a good example, even in that example, the team was not playing to win the tournament. They had a higher purpose to unite the nation. Yes. And that's why they were willing to fight that hard. Yeah. It was a purpose worth fighting for. And do you remember the reaction of all the Afrikaners when Mandela came out there wearing an Afrikaner jersey? Yes. Nelson Mandela is the greatest leader of my lifetime. I'm not trying to get into politics, yeah. but I'm saying, you know why he is? Because he had a searing crucible, 27 years in jail for a crime he didn't commit. And, but he went into jail and he was extremely upset with the regime. And if anything, trying to overturn it. And in jail, he said, no, my job is I'm not representing black South Africans. I'm not representing white South Africans. I'm representing all. Just exactly said, he had to unite the nation. It's a multiracial multicultural society. It always will be. And he had to unite the nation around a greater South Africa. And that's why I admire him so much. You know, this story reminds me of whenever I see CEOs talk, they are doing important work. I mean, if you were launching an electric car startup that can play a major role in reducing the effects of climate change, that's a powerful message. But I see so few CEOs talking about the higher purpose of what they are doing. Well, I'm disappointed to hear that. I think you're right. We run new CEO programs that I'm actually in charge of at Harvard Business School yeah, with only 12 at a time, no more than 12 CEOs of large companies. And that's what we talk about is your higher purpose. What, what is it for your company? It's different for every company, but they need to think about that. Then they need to instill that in everyone who has a stake in the company, the employees, the customers, the shareholders, that there is a higher purpose. And some people won't buy it, but uh, that's your job. And do you feel that this is something that the, the CEO must lead or is something the board leads? 
I think the CEO should lead it. The board should ask questions about it. I, I was on the board of Goldman Sachs and we went through a rough patch. We actually sailed through the, uh, you remember the uh, global uh, collapse, yeah. uh, financial crisis in 2000. Goldman did very well. They and JP Morgan came through unscathed. But Goldman, uh, after the fact, got a lot of criticism. A lot of people felt that the Goldman's principle number one is written by John Whitehead, a friend of a mentor yeah. of mine, a great yeah. man. The client's interests always come first. And they'd kind of slid away from that or are more interested in making big bucks. And yes. the compensation got awfully high in 2006 and seven. And uh, so I chaired a committee at Goldman working with Lloyd Blankfein. Thanks to him, he asked me to do it, to really look at that and say, are we doing it? And let's get really in depth. Are we really putting our, are we just, is that just a mantra, but we don't actually do that. By the way, our clients don't believe we're doing it right now. So we need to transform ourselves and find ways to ensure them, but we need to train every employee. That's your job, is to put the client's interest first. So if you're in private wealth management, your job is not to make money off your clients. Your money job is to enhance your client's long-term financial wealth and stability. It's not to make money for yourself. And if you get that, you can have a great career. In fact, you'll end up making a lot of money if you get that. But what you said is very true, because I think in the case of Goldman Sachs, and I may be wrong here, you would know better in this particular case. For a long time, Goldman Sachs were masters of the universe, right? They were yep. at the top of the financial food chain, and then you saw the rise of private equity and venture capital. And I think to some degree, these leaders of Goldman Sachs had envy that they were not generating the fees and salaries as private equity executives. And they made decisions to reach parity with those industries, as opposed to do what is best for their customers. Now, that's my take on it, but you were there. You would know better than me. It's a very good take. Uh, you know, I, uh, I heard Jamie Dimon one time, he got offered 10 times as much. To, he makes a lot of money, by the way, yes. uh, to be, and he's the greatest financial leader out there today, but, and he has been for 15 years or more, but he, uh, he got offered 10 times as much to work, work for a private equity company, not even be in charge of it. And uh, so, you know, there's something wrong with those figures, you know? But yeah, I think they got away from them. those temptations are exactly what you said. And people, it took their eye off the ball, off the customer ball. And uh, one person that I feature in my book, Richard Davis, uh, who ran the largest uh, super regional U.S. Bank Corp. Yes. And he was very clear, we're not going to get into that fast money stuff. Uh, we're going to keep focused on, we're going to be a commercial bank focused on our customers. And uh, he did it very well. So, Yeah, I think it's important for leaders to know that the job is not to make the most money, as you well said many times, but in some industries, your profits are naturally going to be less than other industries. That's just the nature of the game. You can't really change the economics. I mean, if you're in retail with these wafer-thin margins, you need significant scale to make a lot of money. But even then, your margins are always going to be so tiny. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine CEOs of retail companies earning as much as other industries. But unfortunately, that's how some leaders think. Yes, and that's what I am trying to change. I've been working my last 20 years trying to change that but let's take a leader of a retail company that has some of the smallest margins or the greatest squeeze and that's walmart yeah okay a lot of people used to be the company you love to hate you know they've got over two million people around the world 
But uh, what what has been done there, I tell you, by the leadership is amazing. For a long time, I was very cynical about Walmart because they were living off the backs of their employees. But, uh, you know, new CEO came on, Doug McMillan. He raised everyone's salary significantly. He said, now, okay, you're not making great money. Don't get me wrong. You're not making money like an investment banker. But he raised everyone's salary. Stock went down 38%. But guess what? It came way up because they started looking at their customer needs a lot more and taking care of their people. And they had far less turnover. And today they're flourishing because of what Doug McMillan did. And then he said, you know, we can make a lot of money on sustainability. Why are we using all this cardboard? We don't need all that. So if we're going to have savings, let's not do it on the backs of our employees. Let's take it out of the, the waste we have in cardboard. Let's, that was just one small example. But he's done so many things like that. Uh, it's just remarkable. And it's not a difficult thing if you think about it, because if you don't pay your employees well, one, they're not incentivized to work. So you have underperforming employees. Second, yep. churn in retail is so high that it's worth paying extra to reduce that, even if it's just a few percentage points. And what's the value of having somebody on a store floor that knows the customers that come in there regularly, that recognizes them? Yes. 20-year employee, if they quit because you've churned them out, uh, it's not going to end well for your company. You know, we go, I, I think one thing we took away from COVID is the value of frontline. We learned in COVID is the value of frontline yes. employees. And the very first person to acknowledge that was Doug McMillan of, of uh, Walmart and then Brian Cornell at Target. And Doug put out the March 15th. I mean, that was really early. We we're trying to understand what we got here and didn't know how long it's going to last. $550 million more compensation for his frontline employees. None of it went to supervisors. None of it went to managers. None of it went to executives, just to his frontline people. Because he said, I know you're risking your lives to be out there. And I think sometimes a little arrogant that, arrogant that people talk sitting behind Zoom screens, I'm not coming into work. Well, that's great. But you know, 60% of the workforce has got to be on the front line. Those employees have to be to keep the store open. They have to be there. They're not sitting behind a Zoom screen. And so I really admire what he did. And that number went from 550 to well over a billion dollars the first year. So he, he recognized he had to take care of his frontline people. And what else matters? Yeah, I mean, I remember speaking, keeping to our retail example, since it'll be relevant to most people. I remember going to Home Depot once. I don't go there often, but I was around and I spent 30 minutes trying to find someone to help me. Huh. And I was thinking to myself, how can this be a sustainable business model if you've got people coming in? Because if you've ever shopped in these home improvement stores, things are stacked seven, eight shelves high you need someone to show you where things are because they all look the same. They're hidden in little nooks and crannies. And I was thinking to myself, there's no way this can be good for the business. And I'm not saying that's the only reason Home Depot faltered when they faltered, but it would seem that if any of the board members actually walked into their stores, they would have known it's an unpleasant experience to shop there at that time anyway. Well, the backstory of that is, you know, this whole firm was put together by people like Bernie Marcus and, and Mitch Hart and others. And the whole key to it was to have all these technical experts on the store floors that could help you. And the, the secret is that 60% or 70% of their clients are women, but they want to add on a porch out back of their home. Yeah. How to show them what would they need, how it fits together and help them put that together. Bob Nardelli then comes in from G uh, General Electric. 
and and uh, the board made a big mistake. And I remember one of the uh, the founders told me, he said, Bill, we're so proud of Bob. He fired 70 out of 71 vice presidents. The only one he kept was our CFO. And I said, yeah. well, you know, CFOs, you can find CFOs from a lot of industries. That's They're fairly fungible. But how about those people that are running retail stores and know how it goes and how this business really works? So they all got fired and they brought in a group of military vets and they made everything centralized and took all those people off the floor and said they're saving money. Exactly what you experienced. And uh, they went way downhill. And so they finally fired Nardelli and he took away a big severance package, which made me angry, <laughs> getting paid to fail. And uh, but then Frank Blake came back and they, you know, they're turning it around now. But uh, to their credit, uh, you know, but you're right. That's the key. What's your model? I used to cynically say, look, if you provide no service at Home Depot, why would you just not go to Walmart? Because they have a low service model, too. And you can buy everything there at 30 percent less. So, uh, but, you know, I think sometimes people don't understand what makes their business go. Does the pharma company understand what you're really doing is healing someone. You're not just getting them to take your drugs. You understand the essence of your business. You know, when you're making a develop, designing a car, do you understand this car is a joy to ride? That's why Tesla has done so well. Everyone loves to drive a Tesla. Everyone I've ever talked to, my daughter-in-law has one. They love it, you know? Yeah, the thing is that when we talk about large companies, billion dollar corporations with 3,000 branches, 200,000 employees, we often forget that transactions take place at an intimate local level. I go to a branch because I like that banker who knows me. I go to that gas station because I know the person who runs the convenience store and I trust the produce they put out. And the problem is because frontline workers tend to be paid lower on average, we assume they are replaceable that they don't have the institutional knowledge and the institutional knowledge is not needed. But really that's the reason you do business with certain people, right? You're, you're very perceptive. That's exactly right. And let's take Starbucks. Why would you pay five bucks for $5 for a cup of coffee? You used to be able to buy for 50 cents. Yeah. Because you have a relationship with the barista because Howard understood there's a coffee break. Okay. What happened is they, they got so busy, they had lines, they really lost sight of what the coffee house was. And they put a barrier called a coffee machine between you and, and the bar. So you can't even see her behind the counter. And her life became miserable. And now they're having a big unionization drive. Why? Because they lost sight of the frontline people. Howard's trying to bring that back. But, uh, you know, you can never lose sight of your, your frontline people. They saved us during COVID. All those yeah. people in medical centers, they're risking their lives. People delivering things to your home, you know, stock picker, shelf, you know, putting stuff in the shelves at the target store. Those are the people that made things go during during COVID, you know, and uh, and we have to honor those people. That's why I said I think we got the model upside down. Yes, like my favorite restaurant. It's a pretty high end restaurant, but it's not the best restaurant in that area. And people always ask me, why do you go to this restaurant all the time? You go like three or four times a week. The reason I go there three or four times a week is because they know me. If they don't have a table, they'll find a way to create a table. For me. Right, exactly. They'll put me at the bar and they'll give me a free cocktail. And I say, just wait 20 minutes. We'll get you a table. We'll clear out something for you. And I can go any day. doesn't matter what's happening. They will take care of me. In fact, when they see me parking my car, they're already starting my order. So what's the value of you as a customer 
who is very loyal to them as opposed to the customer, the one-off customer uh, that you'll never see again. You know, think about it. And, uh, you know, you know, understands that at the airline business, first of all, the Asians understood it the best, you know, Singapore Airlines, Emirates understands it, but the Americans didn't. And they were all driving for lowest cost. And then Delta, uh, Richard Anderson, now at Bastion, brought them out of, out of bankruptcy, but they really take care of their customers. So I prefer to fly Delta in, in the United States over any other airline because they care for me. They take good care of me. And I, you know, I always know I can get a seat and they take care of me, you know? And so uh, that kind of care, I always said, Michael, I think business comes down to the last three feet, whether it's between you and that barista, between you and the flight attendant as a customer, between you and your doctor at a medical center or the nurse, that's what matters. And it's not, you'll never, you're never going to see this. CEO of Delta on one of their airplanes, you're probably not even going to see the owner of that restaurant you like. You might, if he's a good owner, he'll come around. That's why I prefer a, a, a privately owned uh, restaurant to yeah. a chain-owned restaurant because you, you just have some manager that's itinerant there for two years so you can get promoted to a bigger restaurant. But I think it's that personal care. And yeah, you'll pay. I'll pay a higher price, I can tell you. And you say, well, Bill, you can afford to. No, people will pay a higher price at a grocery store to get quality vegetables and and uh, meats and fish and stuff they like that's uh, you know that people help them get the right thing yeah because i mean if i go to the same restaurant i know all the waitresses and waiters i know what's happening in their lives i know what they're paying for i know where they live so if i'm tipping them i know why i'm tipping them there's not some yes. faceless person that i'm tipping i know where the money is going to go and that factors into it. And one of the most important things I've always told clients is that you've got to think about the lifetime value of customers. This is very important. Right. If you think about the lifetime value of customers, then you'll be willing to lose a lot up front to lock them in for the long term. Mm -hmm. and unfortunately, there are so many companies today that don't think about the lifetime value and they try to make the most from that first transaction. And of course, if they take too much from you, there's never going to be a second transaction. You got it. That's exactly right. And so, but you know, that's the value of customers. I think when we automate everything, we lose sight of it. That's, that's the Starbucks tragedy. They'll come back, but that was what happened to them is they lost sight of their loyal customers. And what's the value of a customer that comes in every day, as opposed to one that comes in once a month or once a year. Yeah, I agree with you. Well, I really enjoyed speaking to you. Amazing conversation. Do you have any parting words for our audience? <laughs> well, my passion the last 20 years, Michael, has been to uh, develop leaders who lead authentically, that have a sense of their true north. They know what who they are and what they believe in, and uh, they have a clear sense of purpose that they align people, all the things we've been talking about. So my hope is from this podcast that more people will, uh, will want to become that kind of leader, and then we can transform leadership. I know it's a big big goal, but you got to have a big goal. And I've been working on this for a long time. So that's why my new book is Emerging Leader Edition is focused on uh, Gen X, Millennials and Gen Z leaders. Because I think we need a new generation of leaders now to step up. They don't have to be CEOs like them tell me. They can be, you know, first line people, but they really need to step up to leadership. And I think we need to give them the opportunities to do it. Because I think in many ways, we need to, it's time for the baby boomers to move on and bring on a lot of younger leaders who can uh, really understand today's culture and can lead that way. Jack Welch was great for his time, but not today. And so all the people that are emulating him 
are not going to make it today. And so we need new leaders that really want to take care of their customers and, and take care of their employees and be good people, be moral leaders that lead toward a sense of purpose. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.